episode was recorded prior to the COVID-19 pandemic. Hello and welcome to another episode of Poopology. You're joining me, Eve, your host, and I have here with me my co-host, Lisa. Hey there. And we have our special guest, Penny. Hello. So before we kick things off, we're going to start with our poopy moments as always. So who wants to go first? I'm not. You're I'm, ready. I'm ready. I'm You're just, ready. I'm, I'm, okay, I'm, I'm, so Lisa, you go first. <laughs> what a good one. I was trying to think of one I didn't fall in, so this is going to be... <laughs> <laughs> How hard did you have to think to come up with that? <laughs> Do you know what? Really hard. <laughs> really hard. I realised my list was very... Um, yeah, I'm actually beginning to think I'm clumsy. So it's a running joke with me and my um, best friend that we are both... We're both kind of smart. I would think we were smart, clever women. But for some reason, when we go on holidays together, it's like we lose all sense of sanity and get ourselves into all sorts of situations. So when we were going to Bali um, a couple of years ago, her partner at the time was like really concerned because he knows what happens when the two of us go away together. It's always very innocent, but we just seem to get ourselves into unusual situations. So really excited when she arrived. I arrived the day before. Had an issue with the hotel. That was fine. I was moved. And she landed and obviously we get so excited. Our, our normal MO is like, we'll get wine straight away and like have a big chat because she lives in Australia and I'm obviously on the other side of the world. So we always have that like one night where we just sit down and like have um, catch ups. So we're all going well. We're having a lovely time in this beautiful hotel and we had a private pool area and everything and everything was just so beautiful. Had some wine, had some more wine. And then um, <laughs> decided that we should go out. Okay. So went to get her bag and she was like, I can't open my bag. And I was like, oh, you've forgotten the code. So I rang down reception and I was like, oh, can you come up and Jimmy open the bag for us? So lovely guy came up and he jimmied open the bag and we were having a great chat. And as soon as he got the bag open, I just looked at her and I was like, damn. So as soon as he left, I was like, it's not your bag, is it? (gasps) Oh my God. You broke into someone else's bag. (laughs) She was like, not so much my bag. And I was like, oh my God, of all places to take somebody else's bag as well is Bali. Yeah. It's the one thing you're told. And I was like, Paula, I am going to kill you. So not only have you taken the wrong bag, we've now broken the bag. And what was in this bag? Oh, just like, it was people's clothes. Thank God it wasn't anything. Because I mean, like, I get visions of the two of us getting like... like, A kilo of coke inside. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, anything could be. The one place in the world that you are not, you're supposed to be extra vigilant about your luggage and what you do and not getting yourself into trouble. Did you pack this bag? No. No. (laughs) It's not even female clothes inside there. It was actually male clothes. Um, And then it got actually worse. So we, I, I was like, look, I've got clothes. So we, we went out um, and again, went out, went to a local pub, got dropped off, realised we had four different currencies and none of them were a currency that was taken in Bali. <laughs> <laughs> so we're haggling at a bar, they wouldn't what take our cards. did you have four different currencies? Between us, we had everything. We had American <laughs> dollars, Aussie dollars, euros, sterling. Oh my God. Nothing that was acceptable and they didn't take cards anywhere. Oh my god, were you washing up? So, oh my god, like, and I'd already ordered the drinks, so I was trying to explain. I was like, well, you can take all, like, we were offering like 10 times the amount just to give us the drinks um, yeah. to go. Followed by trying to get a taxi then for this exact same issue. I mean, like, the first night alone, I think we nearly got ourselves killed about three oh times. Oh my god. And um, some poor guy pulled in, an English guy in a taxi, he was like, get in, you're going to get yourselves into so much trouble. Um, and after that, when we actually, my friend explained to her partner what had happened to us, and he was like, 
pretty much I told you so. <laughs> yeah. And um, he got us a driver for the rest of the night. Oh, <laughs> like these two we were... can't be trusted. Yeah, he literally wow. had a driver bring us everywhere on nights out and the driver would come in and get us an area and a table and watch us. <laughs> so, so it's like really a bodyguard. A minder, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, so um, I actually think it's a great idea and I'm going to yeah. need a minder every time I go out. Yeah. <laughs> Especially when I'm with I Eve. thought Bali was quite a chilled place, so uh, that's given me a different idea. I mean, you haven't met myself and my best mate, Paula. Okay. So <laughs> it is for most normal people, but okay, you know, if you're I with these two, anything can doing happen. Yoga. Yeah. I love how she's trying to make herself sound so innocent over here. <laughs> so innocent. Moi. Moi. Angel. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> that was my lovely travel story. Lovely. So, Aww. Penny, tell us about your poopy moment. Uh, there's nothing nearly as crazy. Um, I was trying to think about all the ridiculous things I've done through the course of my career, of which there have been many mistakes, but hey, they're all learning experiences. So it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> That's um, what we tell ourselves anyway. <laughs> that was a learning experience. <laughs> learning. Learned learn? so much. Uh, <laughs> I'd, I'd started a job as a press officer in a, in a venue in Brighton. And I got asked to do a press release because the local community orchestra wanted more trombone players. I was like, yeah, fine, I can do that, yeah. Bash something together, put the stuff in. Yeah, we need trombone players, fine. Put it out, all the local media, got loads of coverage, really pleased with myself, lovely. And then I get a call from a local journalist saying, oh, hey, we haven't met yet. Um, I think you joined quite recently and uh, we haven't met, but for some reason I'm getting loads of phone calls from people saying that they can't play the trombone, but they can play the tuba. Do you know anything about that? And I'd only, I'd had so many post-it notes all over my desk. That was the number I put in. I put this poor journalist from the local paper and she had every oh random calling God. her up saying, I can play the bongos. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, made an impression. Um, whoopsie. <laughs> Learning experience. I know. Learning experience. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Don't do that. I love that. Like, sorry about that. <laughs> anyway, I'm memorable now, so yeah, exactly. that's me. Exactly. She could have started a band. Yeah. I mean, she might have done that on the side. It's a gift, really. You gifted her with music. Yeah. Mm. Thank you for the music. <laughs> I'm not going to try that today. <laughs> anyway, okay, on to my poopy moment. So mine's a really short, sweet one today. But two days ago on Sunday, I uh, was in a little bit of a frenzy. I had a friend call me. She was a little bit sick. You know, whatever took care of her and all that sort of stuff. But I was like, it was like a really unexpectedly busy Sunday. You know, when you just think you're going to have a certain day and all this stuff happens and then you're running around in circles. And then it's late at night and I'm a bit tired on my way home and I'm standing at a platform in this station, in this underground station. And in the distance, I see someone that I think I know and I'm blind as a bat and wearing the wrong glasses because I had left the house thinking I was going to be uh, going somewhere else and I ended up somewhere else. So I had a different set of glasses. So I'm actually even more blind because these glasses are for short-sighted and I'm trying to see far away and, and then I'm thinking I should take these off and then I really can't see anything. So... Anyway, but I'm sure that this person is somebody I know. So I just think, oh, let me just get a bit closer. And then, you know, and then I start smiling at them like, hey. And then 
they start smiling. I can see that they're smiling back at me, but I still can't like fully make out the features. So I just kind of waved and I'm getting closer and closer and they wave back and I'm like, oh, this is definitely the my friend because obviously <laughs> like they're waving back and I get even closer and then I'm like, oh, my friend looks a bit different than I remember. <laughs> but I'm still like smiling and getting closer and closer and I get like right basically up to this person. And then I suddenly realize it's not my friend. And at the same time, the train arrives. And because it's a Sunday service, the trains are very slow. So I'm too tired and the trains are too slow for me to wait for the next one. But I've literally walked up to a stranger whilst waving and smiling at them for the last, like, five minutes. But to my surprise, like, I don't know why they were waving back and smiling back. So anyway, and the train comes, the doors open, we go in. I sit down and I'm like, okay, how am I going to act this out? I'll just pretend it didn't happen. Like... And then he comes and sits next to me. And then I'm like, oh, my God. And then he's obviously looking at me <laughs> with a big grin on his face like, hey. <laughs> I'm like, so I'm like, I don't know where to say, You know, when you're like, do I look at him? Do I say, I'm really sorry. Me, do I just like look in the opposite direction? <laughs> so I was kind of opposite direction. <laughs> <laughs> looking at him, looking away, looking at him. And then he eventually just literally went like, hi. And I was like, hi. <laughs> Did you sound surprised? Oh, hi. No, hi, I was what? like, hi. And then he's like, so. <laughs> I'm just like, you know, when you're just like, I really don't know what to say. So I said, I'm really sorry. Like, I'm really blind. And I can't see anything. And um, I thought you were someone I knew. And I'm laughing as well at the same time. And I said, I'm really tired. I've had like a really busy day. And then he's like, oh, you know, your glasses are on your head. Like, and I was like, no, these are the wrong glasses. Like, I, I can't see with these, the distance. So, like, I'm really, really sorry. Like, your outline looked like someone I knew. And because you wave back, I then assumed you were someone I knew. And then he was like, I thought you were just trying to be friendly. And then I was I like, oh, I'm, I'm really sorry. And I was like, I am friendly. And then we start having a full-blown conversation. Yeah. It turns out like this guy lives one stop away from where I live. So he basically accompanied me almost all the way home, you know. Oh, nice. And we just had like a chat through the journey which was quite quite interesting and quite fun but the beginning of this you know strange friendship was a bit, <laughs> a bit odd to be honest I, I have done that though <laughs> I've actually scared somebody <laughs> by staring at them well, it probably would have been a good poopy moment but uh yeah it was actually I thought they were Claire and I have a habit of like with my friends especially people I know are jumpy that I'd go up behind them. <laughs> oh, no. And, uh, yeah, I was getting on the um, DLR, <laughs> my canary wharf, and I poked somebody <laughs> <laughs> that I thought was Claire. Oh, wasn't. my God. I was so much going red saying, yeah. <laughs> the poor person <laughs> jumped in front of the train. <laughs> and then I nearly died because it wasn't who I thought it yeah. was when they turned around. So yeah. yeah, at least you didn't poke them. No, but I mean, him sitting next to me, just, you know, when you were just kind of like, I feel like I should say something right now, but I don't know what to say. I mean, 
but it was really funny because I was like, I've had a really rough day, so I'm really sorry, I'm a bit tired. And then he's like, oh, I thought you were being friendly. And then he started asking me, so what what happened today? So I said, oh, my friend was sick, so I just came to help her out. Oh, so what do you do? And next thing you know, I'm like, sir, my job is really hard. <laughs> you know, like, you know, like, when you're like... Oh, he sounds lovely, though. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like, like a, a great friendship. Like a bit of a free counselling session yeah. on the on the London I mean, Underground. I think you should have gone for a drink. Uh, yeah I mean I don't know I wouldn't have wanted him to think any more than whatever he already thought like mm-hmm. this strange girl was like, oh my god there's a really beautiful lady waving at me like yeah. this is I mean, a great Sunday I mean if there was one day I did not look beautiful it was this day <laughs> hey, those are always the days that take you by surprise and you're so, giving off some vibe and you just don't know and then I mean, have you I, seen him again since if he lives no, one stop from you no no does he so actually if, live one stop from you yeah, and if I don't know he's, he's given me his phone number I refuse uh-huh. to give mine because I was like look I know I acted like I knew you but I don't know you so I'll take yours for now and then we'll see and he was like oh we should hang out you know this would I be think cool you should mm-hmm. so I don't know okay well, we'll I'm see. 100% behind we'll you yeah we need a, a Christmas too. drink yes thank you <laughs> because he was like I only never stop away from you so we should definitely hang out you're local mm, watch this space everyone watch this space so there you go so I'll, I'll keep you posted on my next pee pee moment with him <laughs> where basically I go to meet him and then I don't recognise him. <laughs> With glasses on. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> anyway, okay, so let's move on. So Penny, we are really here to talk about you today. Okay, that's not intimidating at all, but okay. It's all the best, you. Well, okay. because you, I, I suspect you have some amazing and interesting stories. So when we found out what you do, we're going to mm-hmm. let you introduce yourself and what you do and where you've been and all that kind of stuff. But when we found out that you work for the Red Cross and you've been to some interesting parts of the world mm-hmm. after wars and disasters and some you know high-profile situations that everyone uh, has been exposed mm-hmm. to in recent years, we were really intrigued to find out about you know your experiences and perhaps to get more of a an insider's perspective, I guess. Because here we're very much obviously reliant on either the news or other people's perspectives. We've not been to some of these places during those times mm-hmm. of crisis. Mm-hmm. So we don't have really a very true understanding, possibly, um, of what happens and, mm-hmm. and what it's like. So that's really what we wanted you to Tell us about. I'm going to pass on the okay. reins to you. So, yeah, I've worked for the Red Cross for 11 years now. Gosh, that's a long that's time. That's a long time. Yeah. Um, and I, I work in their press office. So I work for British Red Cross, but I've also worked overseas a few times for the International Federation of Red Cross as well. So I've worked in Syria a couple of times and Pakistan. And I've done some visits after disasters. It's normally to take media out, so you're taking out uh, photographers, journalists. Mm-hmm. Gone out to Jordan and Lebanon and uh, Haiti after the earthquake Gosh, as well. Yeah. But, you know, I think people think quite often, you know, well, it's, it's a really glamorous job and there's loads of travel. When you're interviewing people for yeah. a role in our team, I think they think it's going to be loads of international travel. And a lot of the time it's actually all the UK stuff as well. You know, we yeah. do mobility aids and we help people who need to come out of hospital and we work with refugees and we teach first aid so we do a whole bunch of stuff and emergencies on the UK like we were there after uh, the Grenfell Tower fire as well Mm -hmm. so like 2017 was a really really intense year 
Um, I came back from Syria, having been there for about four months. And then we had the Manchester bombing. Oh, we had yeah. Westminster Bridge. We had yeah. London Bridge. Yeah. We had Grenfell Tower. We had Finsbury Park Mosque. So that year was, yeah, yeah that was full on. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So let's start with Syria because this journey sounds like a... So we'll follow this journey that you just <laughs> mentioned because <laughs> it sounds like an interesting one. Mm. And there's a mixture of obviously overseas and, and some, you know, stuff that's happened here in the UK as well. Yeah. So in your four months, I mean, what was it like, firstly? I know that's a very open question, yeah. but, I mean, you must have had some expectations in your head or in your mind of what you thought it would be like. When you got there, was it the same, different, better, worse? Really very different to, to how I thought it would be. I think because the stuff you see on the news is the extreme stuff, obviously, because that's newsworthy. Mm-hmm. And what you see is... The worst damage, of course, you know, that's all the reasons for that. And I've been lucky enough to work in in Syria twice. And the first time I went was 2014. And I was based in Damascus and then with some travel around. But I remember when I was crossing the border being quite nervous. And then you arrive into Damascus and you've gone through the outskirts where there's been really bad bombing, lots of destruction. And that's really eerie when you go past areas, just generally when you're traveling around, you'll go past areas that are like ghost towns. Mm-hmm. And the buildings are like empty eyes just staring at you. It's it's really wow. eerie. And then you'll, you'll reach other areas where, I wouldn't say it's bustling, but things are actually yeah. kind of normal, but yeah. not normal. Oh, yeah. Um, so there are, you know, sandwich shops and, you know, you can go down to the market mm. and there's stuff going on. And we went down to the, the old city of Damascus, which is really beautiful, the old walled city. So you can see all the things that people used to see when they went there on holiday. Yeah. You're like, oh, I can see why people came here. It's so yeah. beautiful and historic and, and people are so proud of this city and proud of their country. And Yeah, but then there's, there's lots of stuff that isn't quite mm. right at the yeah. same time, obviously. You know? yeah. Yeah. There's some things that are quite subtle, like you notice that lights aren't on in a lot of buildings right. and people aren't living in places. Mm. And then, you know, some things that are less subtle, like... Mm you know, <laughs> mortars, yeah. rockets, you yeah. know, all sorts of things going on. It's yeah. it's a really mixed bag, which makes it quite yeah. difficult to describe. Yeah. But it, was it amazing quite place. scary? Yeah, I was going to say, yeah. you're on high alert all the time. Like, can you ever feel like you can, like, relax? Or are you always constantly a little bit on edge because you, it's yeah. a different environment and you don't really know, what, like, how does that feel? Yeah, I mean, you have to be sensible because it is a country that's going through conflict. So, you know, you you have to go around being aware of that. And when you leave, you do, you feel your shoulders kind of, yeah. you know, go down and, and you take a rest. But then you think about all the people that you've been working with who don't get to do that. That yeah. is yeah. how they're living all the time. And people adjust, you know. I was talking to neighbours, I was, I was living on a flat on the street and they were saying, you know, in the beginning, if a mortar landed on the, you know, just the end of the street, people would think, right, that's it, I need to pack up and go. Yeah. And then gradually people just adjusted to it. I'm like, oh yeah, okay, this happened, okay. And then it just becomes a new version of mm. what's normal. And you start to adjust yourself around it. Like that you think, oh, okay, well, I won't go to this place because yeah. it's not very safe. And then you accept an element of risk. Yes. But it's still quite shocking sometimes. Like, we went out somewhere Thursday afternoon, which is kind of like Friday night here. We went out to this place where you can get these amazing, crazy 
coloured drinks and there were loads of bodybuilders from the place across the street going in and showing off and picking up their <laughs> yeah. massive drinks and the guy was like ah oh, English person and did me this amazing drink and we had such a lovely time and you sit out on the street and the lights come on and everyone's preparing for the weekend and then the following weekend uh, the place was really badly bombed and Gosh. some of those people yeah. you know were injured and some of them didn't make it and mm. it's it's this weird thing where you, you look back at the photo and you think, oh, wow, that was so normal. Yeah. I mean, the place we spent my, my 40th birthday went out for a lovely meal. And again, that place got hit a few weeks later. So there's things like that where, yeah, yeah it's this constant going back and forth between some kind of normality and then... It must be really sad to see that as well. You know, see somewhere mm. that you just recently saw you know hustling bustling beautiful whatever yeah. where you've had some sort of a positive experience and then you know a week or a few weeks later you see it kind of in that state yeah. you know yeah. that must also be quite quite sad I really like that yeah. about, like London Bridge when that happened that mm. time for me because that was my favorite area in London and probably the area yeah. I learned I kind of existed in the most when I first moved over here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That when that happened, that for some reason really bothered me, but it actually bothered everybody actually in my in my network. We just yeah. felt like yeah. it was that's your place. So close to mm. home, yeah. And yeah. I think it really does hit home. Yeah. I mean, when I, you know the area and like you feel like. Yeah, I would agree with that because obviously I work and live really close mm. to London Bridge, and I think what was shocking about London Bridge possibly mm. was. Because we don't obviously have the same sort of, you know, when you said it kind of becomes your new norm, kind of. Mm. We obviously don't have that here. Um, So that made it extra shocking. But also the nature, I think, of that particular event was quite scary. Because it just felt like it could happen to anyone, anytime, walking on any road, (laughs) anywhere, you know, with Mm. no, no rules or regulations. You know, we're kind of used to, you know, I remember years ago when there were bomb attacks on tubes and Mm. buses. So people stopped kind of using that transport or avoided it as much as possible or something. But this just felt like, it could literally be any anywhere. street, right? So that could happen anywhere. Yeah. So I guess it must be a similar sort of thing in these yeah. places where everywhere is in conflict. So, I mean, a bomb can, I guess, land on you at any street or any restaurant. You don't really, yeah. you know, you don't really know. So that, that becomes that becomes people's normality, though, like because you don't, mm. nobody should have to live in circumstances like yeah. that. In yeah. an ideal world, obviously, that's not what anyone should have to deal with. And then you were saying Red Cross obviously works with refugees and those kinds of people here in the UK. Mm. So some of those people must obviously be people coming either from Syria or other similar, you know, countries that are in conflict. What kind of issues do you think they kind of face? What is the most common sort of things that you get in the Red Cross that you have to provide help for? Is there one sort of or two big underlining things or is it just a whole array of... That's a whole bunch of stuff. You know, it's 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 so difficult. I feel so sorry for people when they arrive because it's almost like a, a giant game and you don't know what the rules are. Yeah. And you're trying to work out how you find your way through this system. So we have caseworkers who will work with people and sort of guide them through because when you arrive, you're really vulnerable. You may or may not have the language skills or if you've got language skills, not adequate to explain what you've dealt with. You know, not in that, in that nuance that you, you need to give. Um, and people meet a lot of hostility. Mm. Um, people are entitled to things, but maybe they can't find their way to find that help. 
and then if judgments are being made and it's really difficult because judgments are being made about their case and if they can't express that or if they haven't got the right support to tell that story then you can end up falling through the cracks really quickly mm-hmm. and you'll end up in destitution I mean we help people who have had their case um, denied and they're waiting to appeal but maybe they're getting no support at all literally nothing so it's anything from food vouchers to food parcels that people can come get food clothing where can you get medical help and then people get really scared of authority as well so mm. even coming into contact with you know, stuff that people are entitled to like going to the doctor people are afraid to do that mm. so yeah yeah, there are there are Syrian people I met here that it was you know it was helpful. They they gave me some help about how things were back in their country, and then I was also able to be in contact with their families and take oh, presents amazing. back oh, as well. So that was really yeah. lovely. Yeah, yeah. And I guess they give them news as well that their families were okay and yeah, stuff like that. Yeah. yeah, there must be a lot of worry for people who are here and still have family, you know, over there wondering what's happening. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Do you find people are receptive? to the Red Cross and and to the help when you're over in Syria and and like abroad do you find people are very open to communicate with you or do they find you wary do they see you as like authority as well people can be wary I mean on the whole we work with the Syrian Arab Red Crescent so they're the local so it's either Red Cross or Red Crescent depending on what country you're in so what is a more accepted cultural symbol that people Mm -hmm. are used to so the, the Red Crescent there has like branches right across the country so it's local people helping local people so it's more understood and yeah people on the whole are pretty good I think it can be difficult sometimes with any kind of paperwork that needs to be done people get wary about what will happen with that so they have to do a lot of explaining about why we do that and it's literally just to keep tally of how many people need help so that we can give that feedback to make sure we get the right number of food parcels or whatever it is Mm. yeah when you have a country that's had some sort of natural disaster, um, are people sort of displaced in a similar sort of way to conflict? You know, is it obviously the experience is different because it's a different thing, but are ultimately the issues quite similar? You know, you've probably lost your home, your belongings, perhaps family members. Yeah, there's a lot of the same help that people need. So we have aid stored in like regional warehouses so that when something happens in another country, you're not flying it all the way from Britain. You've got stuff like in Kuala Lumpur or Panama or wherever. It's nearby, it's ready to go. And a lot of that kit is going to be similar, whether or not it's going to be conflict or disaster related Mm. because you're out of your home. So we have things like kitchen sets. It's a box and it's got all your kitchen equipment in it. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, and then a set of stuff so that you can wash your clothes, wash yourself, toothpaste, sanitary towels, that kind of thing, uh, and food parcels, stuff that's going to keep. So that kind of stuff, that's pretty universal. Mm-hmm. And what a lot of agencies are trying to do is actually move more towards cash because you don't have all the logistics of having to move big, heavy things and procure stuff. So if you can do that, if the markets are open and the economy is working it's a far better way of doing it. So there's much more of a move towards that. But I think what may be different sometimes is it's the psychological impact it has on people. So with Syria, for example, I mean, that's gone on for, it's coming up to the 10th year. It'll go into the 10th year in March. So you think about, you've got children who've grown up through that. I mean, I've spoken to the Syrian refugees in in Jordan and Lebanon who've said, you know, I'm, I'm so disturbed that my child could describe, you know, 
tanks and guns far better than I can. They can they know the names of them. They know what things sound like in a way that made me think we have to get out. This isn't normal for our children. Yeah, it's sad if you were quite young, two three years old when this all started. You know, you're now thirteen years old. So basically, mm. as far back as your memory will go, it's all you know, right? You mm. wouldn't you wouldn't know any other no. thing. You wouldn't know any other time. So I think that's. Yeah, that is really frightening to grow up in that environment, you know, and have no memories of anything other than that. I think it'll give you an unusual slant on life Mm. because that's going to be what you class as normal. So how are you going to ever, yeah, yeah, and not remember that because it's going to make such an impact? It must be a very desperate feeling too, because I guess you probably wonder like where is you know normal people have these thoughts about their future you know I'm going to go to school I'm going to go to college I'm going to go to uni or whatever I'm going to become a so-and-so a doctor a nurse I don't know whatever I think if you are in growing up in a conflict zone and these things are not priority and they're not available probably you know if everything's being bombed mm-hmm. i suspect there is no schools to go to or maybe there is one or two somewhere but yeah, that's been really tricky i mean you see young people who kind of feel like they're in limbo effectively mm. and in syria some of the universities are still open and, and and some of the schools are as well i mean i met people who planned for a certain career but right now that's all just in stasis because that industry so i met someone who, who studied as an architect who's now running the local ambulance team for the for the Red Crescent because she's like, we well, you know, <laughs> it's what not else? really happening yeah. right now. <laughs> yeah. So, and you know, the young people are amazing because they're so motivated to do something. And there are ambulance teams, it is mostly young people. And in between going out, they'll be sat revising. So they're still mm. studying. Yeah. And I think maintaining that hope is very important Mm. and for younger children to let them have a vision of who they could be in the future that isn't just how things are now Mm. so we do like psychological classes with them it's things like you know build your future home out of lego imagine how you want things to be to draw that future to make sure they picture it rather than being stuck in a Mm. position where they can't imagine that anymore so Mm. sad that they might lose hope that it can be better yeah yeah such a sad thought that you'd have younger people yeah. Not being able to see what it would be like. Yeah. And it's those young people who will be the future of that country. Mm. Yeah. And it is a beautiful country. Yeah. And so many contradictions within it. I mean, areas that are really, really green and that reminded me of the UK in some ways. And then areas that are really arid, but all beautiful, very historical. Mm. So, yeah. Anytime I went, I was always thinking, oh, one day I'll come back as a tourist. So... I really hope that one day it reaches that yeah. point again. Yeah, I mean, Damascus was beautiful. I don't know what it's like now, obviously, but I've heard from people that I've had to, not necessarily after, but, you know, as things were getting bad, had to go down and close businesses and stuff because mm. working with hotels at the time and a couple of them had, you know, branches in Damascus and they had to go down and obviously close and get their staff out and, you know, try to deal with mm. what was coming. They had come back saying that it had changed so much already and this Mm. was prior to things getting way worse so it's quite sad to know that that area has possibly changed like that but hey hope right yeah let's try and not get too depressed (laughs) sorry guys Um, but i'm glad we're talking about it because i think it's really important to try and understand more and it's always amazes me you know 10 years on and people are either no longer reporting about it because it's like become a norm so therefore what's the point in talking about it anymore Mm -hmm. or 
you know, something really extreme and dramatic needs to happen for there to be, you know, some sort of news or some sort of reminder of it. And really, you know, I think it's important to talk because we are discussing that these people are continuously living in this state for 10 years and possibly much longer Mm -hmm. than that and it has a very detrimental effect on well society as a whole really i think you look at how many people are displaced you know it affects everyone you know it's a global issue i know everyone likes to fob it off on each other but Mm -hmm. it is a it is a global issue and nobody wants to be displaced so you know you were saying no, now there definitely not is, yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no one wants to have to be in that position or make those decisions you know and you know you look at the the rhetoric about refugees and, and that mm. journey that people make but you know someone said you don't put your children on a boat unless you're absolutely desperate, desperate. yeah yeah i mean i agree i think when i see those people making comments about that sort of stuff I get quite infuriated by it because I can't imagine you know I've always had this thought and Claire actually on season one was talking about how herself and her husband Gerald sat down and when this uh, sort of stuff started happening in Syria discussed you know what if a war broke out here in the UK how would we get to New Zealand you know what would be our route and what would we have to go through to actually do that journey you know what would that entail and you would do anything to save your family. Of course, of course, of, of course. I think people need to be more tolerant and actually to think about it from a different perspective and look at those people's journey and how they've had to come here. And I think people tend to be a little bit complacent mm. and just see it like from a financial perspective. Well, they and see it can't as be financial only. You have to give back. I think it's this view that people are coming here to drain the system, you know, to drain us. (laughs) And we've got so much, they want to come and take it from us. And it's really not like that. We have, like, I think it's less than 3% of the world's refugees. The majority of refugees in any situation will go to a country pretty much next door. Because you want to be able to go home. You want to be someone that's familiar, the culture's familiar, the language is familiar. And you're always in that hope of, well, you know, it'll be over soon, hopefully, and we can go back. Mm -hmm. But it it gets very skewed the way it gets portrayed. Not just media. I think, you know, a lot of people will bash the media. It's a lot of stuff that gets shared on social media and all the kind of fake news that goes around with that as well. Yeah, there's a bit of a bad attitude. It's always the sensational stuff, so they always tell that, like, bad story. Like, for every bad story, there's probably about a million really good stories. But they always focus on that one negative. Yeah. It's not the reality of what's happening. No. We had somebody for about six months who we we just got him to refute wrongly reported stories. <laughs> that was his job. He just sat there yeah. fact-checking everything yeah. and saying, you know, that person wasn't a refugee or that didn't happen and that didn't happen. And he did it for ages, but unfortunately it didn't turn the tide. Still going on. Yeah, I mean, I think as long as we have people with that view... You know, I don't really know how to describe that view. <laughs> um, Not politely anyway. And be polite at the same time. I can see that um, twinkling in your yeah, eye. Yeah, but, you know, I think that that will always continue. You know, mm. I've had people refer to refugees as leeches, which I found quite infuriating. Oh, wow. Like I said, I think if you go through the mindset of thinking about what it must take, you know, what must have to happen to your home and your country and your family for you to go through what it takes to do this Mm. no one in their right mind would voluntarily do this no no there is nothing that 
that nice here to come to yeah. come for that. I mean, no one does it for thing. fun. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. A, exactly. Yeah, I think for some people it's fear, isn't it? And they haven't come into contact with people who are different, and so it's all born out of fear. It has to be. I mean, where is that coming from? Yeah, I mean, but what is there to fear? You know, what is the fear based on either? Like, I don't understand that either. You know, no. did we haven't had like millions of refugees here coming and beating us up on the streets that we have to fear them you know yeah. i just don't understand where the fear comes from i even. think it's a bit of ignorance yeah honest yeah. that's what i think mm. it is i think it's people don't understand and they just hear something and they latch onto it or they're trying to take all our money or like yeah. something as simple as that and it suddenly turns into this like ripple effect that that's what the fact is mm. and it's not i mean the fact is i'm going to say something very politically controversial no doubt i'll receive a lot of emails about this but the <laughs> fact is we spend more money on actually war itself here in the UK than we do giving to refugees. That is factual. The cost of war here in the UK is huge and it's bigger than whatever debt we think we're going to rub out by coming out of the EU and all of that. You know, I, I would That's like to I would like to push everybody to actually find out what the cost of war has been to the UK in the last 20 years, I'd say, since Iraq and, you know, all that sort of stuff. If we go that far mm. back, it is massive. And we have continuous cost as well because we have people that have come back from war injured that we have to obviously take care of and all this sort of stuff compared to the, I think... I don't know if this is factually correct, but I read somewhere that there was only like 2,500 Syrian refugees in the UK or something really small. That's all that I think were taken in from a resettlement scheme. I think there was a scheme that the the government voted in where they were going to take about 20,000. Mm. And the last time they did a count up, it was more like about 2,000. Yeah. Um, there are still people coming in um, because they're being supported. We help with some of that. But yeah, it's it's moved really quite slowly and there's also that issue for that scheme you can thankfully apply from places like Lebanon and Jordan but then you've got all the other people who can't fit in that scheme or it's it's not enough and so they're making this really dangerous journey so if there was a, a way of more people being able to apply from a safe place you know, and apply to maybe several countries and, and see what would be possible rather than forcing people to say, well, you know, if you get here, then we'll look at you. So if you risk your life, yeah. then we'll look at you. If you make the journey alive, then we'll consider exactly. it. Yeah. Yeah. And it it's, it's just inhumane. Yeah, that's crazy, isn't yeah. it? Have you been to any of these camps that they have in Europe? I haven't. I've got colleagues who have been to the one in, in France. Yeah, I haven't. I've been to one in Jordan. I mean, I had a, a friend who went to the one in Greece, there's apparently one in Greece, to help out. Mm. I, I don't know with who, I don't know if it was Red Cross or someone else. And she actually couldn't stay for the length of time that she had planned because it was so traumatic for her. She said the camp setup was much worse than anything else she had ever and she's done lots of like volunteering all over the world and all that sort of stuff and going and helping different causes she just found it really really difficult because it she said it was literally like a jail yeah you know it's kind of like a jail her exact words were obviously she said this might be a bit extreme because i didn't actually see anyone kill anyone but it felt a bit like what a concentration camp must have looked like before they started digging ditches and shooting people into them. Oh, my God. Yeah, it sounds really, really mm. intense. 
I think there's a problem in a lot of places where countries who already have poverty and then they have people who are arriving, but then they're not getting enough support from other people, other countries in the EU. It needs for all the countries to be supporting each other because there is awareness about what the route is and that people are going to be arriving through there. But there are places where they're not proper camps. Mm -hmm. They're spontaneous, they're just happening. And then that's where you get lots of problems from anything from sanitation to security. Mm. I mean, if we're going to be involved with the camp, we have like basic standards that we have to have in order to make sure that it's humane and right. Mm -hmm. And in some cases, we won't get involved. We're like, that camp shouldn't be there. There's a spontaneous camp in in Bosnia, which thankfully is is just shutting now, which is actually surrounded by landmines from the previous conflict there. So you're like, well, that is the worst place to be having a camp like that, let alone not with the the setup to Mm. properly look after people. So if you don't set things up properly to look after people, then you're going to have problems Mm -hmm. like this. But I think... There's probably some fear from governments of like, oh, if we do it properly, then, you know, it'll just encourage people. But we should agree there is a basic standard of care, you know. It's not rolling out a red carpet or anything. It's a basic standard of care that we're all due and, you know, just a level of respect. Yeah, of course. Do you collaborate a lot with, like, other agencies as well and other charities to work together on some of these projects or is it very standalone what you're doing? It depends. There's a lot of stuff we'll work together, especially if we're advocating to try and make things better. Mm-hmm. And there's some projects where we work together, different things. But there's some times where we will be a bit more... Like any money that's raised or comes to the Red Cross only goes out through Red Cross and Red Crescent because we want to be transparent and know where the money's going, Mm -hmm. you're spending it right, that kind of thing. And then we have seven fundamental principles. Please don't ask me to name them all. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I thought you were going to. I got really excited there. Hang on, hold your horses. Um, We have certain rules about how we work. And that can sometimes mean that we don't work with other people because that's that's our particular standards. And, and one of the things that can make it tricky sometimes is we're neutral. And I know that some agencies will be like, oh, well, what a soft option. I mean, like, it's actually really not. because yeah. That's the thing that means that we can go across front lines and go into quite difficult areas. But yeah, there's going to be times when, and it's great because there's other people who can say the political stuff and we're like, go for it. Yeah. But it's not something it's we can not, do. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, which I think is the best. If you're trying to give support and relief to people, you need to be non-biased yeah. in any way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is probably why the Red Cross is so big and so well known is because they, well, they get everywhere. Really, they where, wherever everywhere. people are on. There's 192 Red Cross and Red Crescents now. Yeah, it's wow. amazing. So, yeah. yeah, there's a lot of us. <laughs> that is really, really amazing. How is it funded? It's a bit of a mix. So the ICRC, which is the International Committee of the Red Cross, they deal with more with conflict zones. A lot of their funding will come more through governments or trusts or funds mm-hmm. and that kind of thing. Um, and then the Red Crosses and Red Crescents in, in countries will quite often, it'll be public donations or companies. But it all comes with that caveat of we're neutral, we're independent, so you don't get to tell us how we're going to spend the money. So no one can say, oh, I'll give you this, but you must help these people yeah. and not these people. Like, We're very clear that mm-hmm. that's what the rule is. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's a bit of a mixture. But, you know, fundraising is tough at the it's moment hard, because everyone's yeah. going through a hard time. Yeah, so, it is yeah. hard. There seems to be, like, more things happening around the world. Like, as you were yeah. saying that for the UK in 2017, but if you look now in, like, New Zealand and the volcano mm-hmm. and, like, the 
bushfires in Australia and like Albania's earthquake and there just seems to be so many mm. I just don't know how anyone's prioritizing how to help yeah. I know it's different countries but it's still one world that we're yeah in. I mean like in New Zealand New Zealand Red Cross are there mm. so they're working with the police on on the list of who's missing and who's accounted mm. for and they're giving psychological support to people who've been affected by it or families who are worried or families who found out, you know, what, what's happened to their loved ones. So each country will have some capacity, mm-hmm. but they all, you know, um, fundraising or whatever at home. And then basically what happens when there's a, a massive emergency is that country's Red Cross or Red Crescent sends like an alarm signal to the head office in Geneva and says, help, we need. And you can pretty much work out pretty quickly what it is Mm. sometimes you need a bit more time but mostly you'll be like okay we're going to need food we're going to need water we need experts and this and this and this and they put out a call globally Mm. and it's amazing it's almost like I remember when I turned up um, after an earthquake and it was almost like Eurovision but like more global (laughs) because some Red Cross and Red Crescents are are great at certain things so the Spanish are great at water so they'll send out water experts Uh, Japanese have these amazing mobile clinics so just set up a hospital or set up a mobile clinic so everyone kind of pitches in what they can or they'll try and like well I can't do this but I'll raise money and we'll put that in so that seems amazing Exactly. Yeah, yeah that must be like such a satisfying yeah. thing, you know, in a in a crisis time mm. when everyone else is like, oh my god, Panicking. crisis. Yeah, you're like mobilizing around the world all these amazing people to yeah, try and support. help. Yeah, support. You probably feel less isolated as well when mm. you know that you've got a network of people who are in a big community who actually want to help. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. When you, when you see something's happening on the news, you can look up and you pretty much know that someone will have then gone and done something to help. It's a, an amazing big thing to be mm. part of. And then seeing people then wanting to pitch in and offer help wherever they can. Yeah. And do you find the community is very receptive when something does happen? Is there like, in the UK in particular, because that's obviously your mm. main base. So obviously Grenfell last year and like the terrorist attacks and things. Were mm. people very open and like willing to like, give straight away yeah i mean normally people expect us to be doing something so we can normally judge whether or not we need to open the pill by how many people are ringing us and saying i want to give something i want to do mm-hmm. something and we have the mechanisms for being able to raise the money but also manage it and make sure that it goes out and it's all accountable we did find sometimes when people start spontaneously raising money then they suddenly were like oh my god i have to do all these things and there's all these rules and it's actually difficult really, yeah, yeah it's difficult yeah. it's complicated um so yeah th- that happens and then the acceptance thing is an interesting thing. We found, like, when we went down to to the area around Grenfell Tower, there were times when people didn't want to maybe talk to police or authorities, and so guys from our psychosocial team would go out, say with the NHS guys, and be, like, almost like a neutral, yeah. you know, if mm-hmm. you want to talk. And there were people who were worried about, like, immigration status and that kind of thing, and because we have that neutrality... Yeah, that's quite scary, isn't it? It's so, so much more complicated than, yeah. you know, than you think. Yeah, I'd love to see that you're doing the emotional support as well, though, not just yeah. stuff, because I think sometimes mm. people tend to forget about that emotional side of things oh, and the yeah. trauma that goes with it, because that's that normally has more of an impact than even the most basic things. Yeah. That's great. yeah, you've mentioned that a lot, which is amazing. Can people volunteer their time for the Red Cross if they are especially specialist people, you know, people who know how to climb mountains and I don't know, you know, uh, how to, uh, how to, you know, doctors perhaps or, you know, people that have a specific expertise that 
would possibly be beneficial in these kind of situations that the Red Cross often goes out and helps in. So can they volunteer their time or do you have to be like employed by the Red Cross or um, how does it work? You know, if I works. was a doctor, could I just sort of say, okay, I want to come and help whenever something is going on somewhere, give me a call and yeah. I'll jump on a plane and go. Is that something I could do? We have like a sort of different things that people can do so we have the hey i just want to volunteer as and when and more uk based and we have something called community reserve volunteers so that is when you don't have to do the full-on i have to do loads of training and i have to turn up to loads of training things and it's more hey you watch a video you do some basic checks and then say if there was a massive flood tomorrow and we sent you a text message saying can you please just go and blow up a load of airbeds in a hall somewhere yeah. and then make some tea mm. they can go do that which is brilliant you know yeah. can you fill some sandbags yes great mm. Then we've got people who volunteer more regularly and there's quite a lot of investment and training that goes into that. Mm. And then we have people who go overseas. So it's actually more likely to be a paid job. But what we have is like doctors and nurses who they guarantee like one month out of the year, if we need them, we can call on them. Right. And we have water engineers and health experts. And we have like a, you agree to be on the rotor. So you'll say like, oh, hey, for the whole of November, if you need me, I will guarantee you my grab bag is packed. My, all my jabs will be up to date and I can deploy within 24 hours. That's amazing. Yeah. yeah. And some of them are in a team of four. So, like, we have a team of four for logistics, a team of four for water, and a team of four for what I call water and sanitation, but it's mostly toilets. Yeah. The British Red Cross are very good at toilets. We love a toilet. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> very necessary in emergency. Actually, so, yeah. you know, oh, I was going to mention this, actually. This <laughs> might be the right time. So, Sedef was telling me there is a, a, a what? A poop? Uh, what is it? World Toilet Day. World, World Toilet Day or something. <laughs> I'm just guessing. World Poop it? Day or something. <laughs> like there's, there is something. Yeah. And when I looked it up, at first I was like, oh, she's lying. What the, What is she's that? Looking, you know? <laughs> but then it's actually a very worthy cause and an okay. interesting one that I later on, like in line after I spoke to you a couple of weeks later, I was watching a, um, a documentary on TV about South Africa and mm. how unsafe certain parts of South Africa were. And they were talking about these sort of little shanty town kind of contraptions that people have set up outside of main cities in poverty. And they were focusing on women getting raped. And one of the things were because there's no toilets, and there's like one or two you know, portaloo type of contraptions in the middle of nowhere in this humongous camp. If you need to pee in the middle of the night as a woman, you have to go and walk in the dark because there's no electricity, there's no nothing, and you are open to being raped. And this is like a common thing. So it's like a real safety issue to not have access. I mean, forget the sanitation-related things, but just the basic fact that you have to walk you know, in the middle of a camp somewhere yeah. to a toilet in the dark and this exposes you to all kinds of risk that you would never think. You know, when they were talking about toilets and then they were talking about rape, I was like, how are these two things connected? You know, like as a, yeah. in our minds, yeah. you know, it's kind of like, I don't understand what these people are talking about. And the more they explained and, you know, they were walking through the route. They went to see some young lady in her house and they were walking the route that she would need to walk if she needed to go to the loo in the, in the dark 
and you literally can't see in front of your nose. And the guy doing the walk, he was scared, you know, that he was going to get jumped by someone or get mugged or anything, really. Like, how unsafe it is, let alone being, you know, a young lady trying to go for a pee in the middle of the night. Wow. You know, then in line with what you were saying, I was thinking, oh, my God, this is why there's a toilet day. This is such an important (laughs) thing. This is not a funny poopology thing. But I think we should definitely support World Toilet Day. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean... Love the toilets. Love them. (laughs) I love talking to, like, the the water engineers, and they talk to you at great length about you know, got to check what the groundwater is so you know it's not going to seep in there and you're going to keep it all. So, yeah, I can talk to them for hours. And then all the different designs, which I hadn't thought yeah. of. Because yeah. we had like a set design of a, a temporary latrine, which is like the foot plate, the squat plate, with the whole, like an, it's like a drop latrine oh, yeah. and all of that. But then there's some cultures where that, that's not appropriate. Yeah. And then if you're disabled, that is not Impossible. the toilet you want to be yeah. using. Yeah. So you have to do all the adaptations and then check with people and... Yeah. Yeah. In um, Cox's Bazaar in Bangladesh, where loads of people have come over from Myanmar, you have got so many people in such a tight area. Uh, we actually employ people to go around and actually they have to scoop out all the poo. Mm. We turn it into fertilizer. Yeah. And into fuel. And then you can make it into these bricks as well. So you can like build up to, yeah. you know, the walls and stuff yeah. like that. Yeah. So yeah, well into the poo. Yeah. I mean, I think we should that. have com- compost <laughs> toilets. I think in all these places where people need better sanitation, someone should be sponsoring a ton of compost toilets because, you know, it's more useful. There's actually, yeah. you know, some use that comes out of it as well at the at the end of the day. I mean, it doesn't sound too pretty, but... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, compost Not toilets, lie, other but... than smelling a bit funny every now and then, they're perfectly fine. We like a solution around this <laughs> table. I went to a music festival, actually, last summer, and they had compost toilets at them. Instead of the traditional portaloos, they mm-hmm. put a whole load of these compost toilets. Other than the fact that you had to go up some steps, so it was like a throne. Yeah. <laughs> you, know, you had to go up and some steps. And they did not smell good, I've seen as well. uh, And yes, it smelled a bit, you know, fresh. It was fine. I thought it was way better solution than the portaloos. Portuguese are nobody's favourite anyway, so... (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so on that toilet note... (laughs) So, yeah, I mean, that's quite interesting. So if you wanted to do something, you could go through the training and then make yourself available for a month or, you know, two months or whatever, however much time I'm guessing you have as as an individual and be called upon. That's really quite cool. I might have Mm. to think of what special skills I have and... Add my name to that list. Mm. Well, we do have shelter delegates as well. There's a lot of stuff to do with architecture and shelter. And Well, that was going to be one of my next questions, actually, on whether you had anyone kind of helping or supporting, because there's lots of new ways now of building temporary shelters. Mm. There are lots of architects Mm. and very clever engineers and all kinds of people in the world looking at how you can build faster, cheaper, more sustainably or, you know, more eco-friendly or in any means possible uh, different types of temporary shelter do you have people like that sort of offering systems or services or doing research and working with you on working out how they can yeah Mm. come up with something I'm not up on the latest on that I know that we have done stuff previously because there's stuff you need at different stages in the disaster so you need like what they call temporary shelter which is going to be better than a a tent something that's a bit more sturdy but obviously it's not a proper house Mm -hmm. and then you know the stage you're building back if it's a disaster prone area what are the things you're going to do that means that 
that home is going to survive in the future. So yeah, we have worked with people in the past, but I don't know where we're up to with that, actually. Mm. Okay, so I might have to take that conversation offline then with someone. (laughs) 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 Because it's an interest, you know, it's an area that we're interested in as a company. And yeah, I mean, I, I, I could see myself going and helping pubs and contraptions yeah but some contract <laughs> contra- i'll call them contraptions but uh, purely because she they're she's going to build yeah. <laughs> purely, well because there's a lot of different things and mm. you know we've read about lots and lots of different methods and ways of doing these things and some of them are really amazing actually there's a couple of students that embarked on some stuff last year at Met University architecture students on how to build a house out of a combination of um, sort of chipboard kind of material, some kind of corrugated plastic of some description that's been recycled out of Coke bottles and cow dung. And it's surprisingly well insulated and takes like wow. about three hours to put up. And you can have something that actually can stay for quite a long time Mm -hmm. you know that can be that in between a temporary and a more permanent solution which I thought was amazing I was like you can put this up in three hours and then they actually went somewhere in the middle of Wales or somewhere (laughs) and put this thing up like there is one you know they've, they've put one up yeah and they took videos and photos of it and I think some people stayed in it for a couple of nights just to prove that you'd be warm enough and comfortable enough to actually just sleep in it. And now it's just there as a permanent sort of reminder of this special architectural... Yeah, and I think they won some Reba Awards for it. But I thought it was really, really... Smart. Yeah, yeah, amazing and very smart. So I think there's a lot of people doing a lot of possibly smart things that just need to maybe get in the right hands and... Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and be thought about in a more uh, applicable way, you know, how you can actually make them happen. I think you've just got yourself a new project for 2020. I know, <laughs> I know, I know. I'm spread pretty thin, but I, I can totally see myself. And, you know, next thing I know, I'll be like, where's that scuba diving license I have? <laughs> where, where's this other thing that I know how to do? I'll be like, right, there's a flood. I'll scuba dive my way through Wales. <laughs> I won't volunteer for that one. <laughs> No, but I think it's really cool and I think I would like to volunteer mm. you know at first maybe I'll only be good for making up blow up beds and stuff like that here in the UK <laughs> but I think it's a good way to start and then you know yeah and then I, I guess mean, the more you get like involved you're doing yeah. Something, something something yeah. Happens. yeah yeah I think like everyone a... did one thing exactly like everyone yeah. did something I think to give back it would be it wouldn't be on the pressure would be all on a handful of people yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah, no way. Yeah, that's a nice way of looking at it. So, what are you going to do? <laughs> <laughs> I feel, actually, I've worked for a couple of homeless charities mm. in Ireland and the UK. But um, I actually, yeah, I'm looking to do something. So, I've actually been investigating what I could do. Yeah, and I would quite like to go away actually and see if I could help. Yeah, I like the way you described it. I like that whole kind of community mm. aspect of it. Yeah. You know, everyone getting together for sort of a single cause yeah. at specific times. That really is quite appealing isn't it i think together we are powerful and that's what we all have to mm-hmm. remember despite how many disasters and wars that are going on if we all stick together and work together it's mm-hmm. incredible what what we can all mm-hmm. achieve and this is a perfect example of how 
Yeah. And the great work you're doing. Oh, man. Well, you know, the great work that you guys are going to be doing by Saturday. <laughs> <laughs> we are great at signing ourselves up for things on this podcast. <laughs> so, Lisa, I want to know uh, what you're like with, you know, a hammer and a hard hat. and Because we might be making some dung houses somewhere, you know, in the next couple of years. <laughs> and I, mean, I, I may need your, I I may need your help. <laughs> I think I look good in a hard hat. <laughs> and um, not so skilled on a hammer, but I am willing to learn. <laughs> Best way to put it. Great, great. Um, so just before we leave, I guess I'm going to ask one more question, really, about your sort of the projects that you mentioned here in the UK, mm-hmm. um, because there is such a wide range. And we talked about all the, the high profile stuff, but uh, you were saying about accessibility, helping uh, people home from hospital yes, that and, sort of and stuff. wheelchairs, yeah, yeah. that kind of thing. Yeah, I think one of the unsung heroes of, of, of the work that we do is the wheelchair service. Everyone's like, eh, the wheelchair service, it's brilliant. Yeah. Um, and what blows my mind is that if you need a wheelchair in the UK for six weeks or more, there is no rule that says that the NHS has to provide you with one. And that's not to dis, oh. diss the NHS at all, because yeah. they're great. But there was never any provision there. Yeah. So they don't have the money to do it. Mm-hmm. And we did a ring round of all the NHS wheelchair services, and only about 25% of them were, were able to provide you with one so it's expected that you go and hire one or that you buy one and you're just kind of left to it and it's one of those things that people don't know about yeah so we keep campaigning with the government to try and change things Mm. so that you know you shouldn't be left in that situation where you just can't get one but we do have a a wheelchair service that will provide them to people and it's anything from like end of life care we just think god that blows my mind that you can't go get one um, through to, you know, I've just broken my leg and I want to be able to get around and not be stuck at home. So I love the wheelchair guys. Yeah. I think they're the young sung heroes. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there's a whole load of, of stuff that we do that I think everyone yeah. thinks it's all overseas. Yeah, because it's these kinds of things yeah. that we never really know about, right? Because we know about all the big stuff. And obviously we know because whenever we see something on TV, there's always some Red Cross jackets hanging around yeah. <laughs> helping people. So you're like unmissable. Yeah, well, just hanging around. But we don't know about all this kind of stuff with the wheelchairs and is there other sort of smaller initiatives like well when I say small it's not really very small but you know <laughs> yeah it's, it's the stuff that people don't see so much mm, you know, it's yeah. not quite as visible um, so we do a, a home from hospital service and support at home so it's older people quite often or people who can end up stuck in hospital because maybe there isn't anyone at home or the person who's at home is also elderly and they want to be stuck in hospital because that's no one wants to be stuck in hospital, everyone yeah. wants to go home. So we do a service where actually take people home, help them settle in, put on the heating, clear out any of the old crap in the fridge, make sure they've got a shop in, feed the cat. It's and like then, the yeah. basic but most important stuff, right? Mm-hmm. If you've just exactly. come home. Yeah. You don't want to feel nervous when you get home. You don't want to go home on your own and just come out of a taxi and then feel like, oh God, I'm going to fall again, mm, something's yeah. going to happen. Yeah. So we do some of that and then we kind of try and discover if there's any other underlying stuff going on that someone wants a hand with that's going to make them feel more confident and go out and about again. So yeah, that kind of stuff. Mm. And we teach first aid in schools, but we also do a lot of quite niche groups as well. So mm. anything from... You know, people from migrant communities or maybe they don't speak so much English and we'll, we'll try and find someone, a way of doing that. Mm. We just did, I think we even did some for Hell's Angels. <laughs> I thought that oh, was wow. really cool. <laughs> yeah. So uh, trying to find different ways of teaching first aid, like to anyone, for, like someone who's got a drug problem through to someone who's any kind of 
group where maybe they're not going to go and get the first day training. Yeah. So yeah, that stuff's quite groovy. Would have liked to have been at the Hells Angels. <laughs> I think they did it in a pub. <laughs> not surprised by that somehow. <laughs> Okay, great. Well, thank you so much, Penny, for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Uh, we would love to have you back next that would season. Be Talk to us a little bit more. Thank you. Because it's a really, really interesting subject, mm-hmm. I think, and I've really enjoyed today. Thank you, guys. Oh, it's been brilliant. I'd love it. Thank you very much for joining us for another episode of Poopology today. And once again, I'd like to thank my guest, Penny, and my co host, Lisa. And please join us again next Monday. Most of Lisa's pooping moments involve falling down, or, or sometimes falling up, even. Well, yeah, I'm, I've got skill. I've got falling skills. So, so I think you're definitely going to need that wheelchair at some stage. I'll give back so that I can receive at a later Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Karma. <laughs> <laughs>